Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. How do boosters hold up to Omicron? Booster shots that are going to help us a lot, but it's going to prolong the pandemic. So that's one of the issues we have to be confronting. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The mental health of children is the new focus of a public health advisory. We see more and more depression and anxiety presenting since the start of the pandemic. The story behind catalytic converter thefts and five songs to check out for the month of December. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcasts and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. The Omicron variant has dominated global discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic since its discovery in Southern Africa last month. Nationally, fears over the new variant have prompted everything from travel bans and a debate over their effectiveness to a renewed push to vaccinate the population against what could emerge as the new dominant strain. As health officials continue to learn more about Omicron, how it will affect the course of the pandemic remains to be seen. Joining us now with some of our most pressing questions is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Jade. Always great to be with you. Since last we spoke, Omicron has become a centerpiece of discussion in the fight against COVID-19. Is the concern we've seen so far warranted? Absolutely. We haven't gotten Delta under control. And here comes Omicron. It's, it's already uh, throughout the United States. And it's going to be uh, a very big, important uh, challenge for us. Um, 
the main issue with Omicron is the fact that it evades our immune response, both the vaccines, as well as if people have had prior COVID without a vaccine. So this, uh, we're getting a lot more data on, and there are other properties of Omicron that are uh, an issue, but this is the one that was uh, feared. Uh, it fortunately, you know, where there's workaround plans, particularly booster shots that are going to help us a lot, but it's going to prolong the pandemic. So that's one of the issues we have to be confronting. Some of the biggest questions that remain over Omicron are its transmissibility, as you mentioned, and the severity of symptoms it causes. What does the latest data tell us about this? There's two components of transmissibility that how it can spread. It looks like Omicron has some increased contagiousness over Delta, which is saying a lot because Delta was so hyper contagious, but it really has a lot of this immune evasion feature. So that's why it's pretty much destined to become a new dominant strain. Remember, Delta took over the whole world. And right now, except in a few countries that have been the initial ones besides uh, Southern Africa and Denmark and the UK, most of the countries are in a well less than 0.1% of, De- of Omicron. They're 99.9% Delta. So that's going to change. It's going to evolve to Omicron. And that's why we're going to have to deal with this immune escape or immune evasion property. It's, it's a really big deal. Do we know if booster shots give added protection against this new variant? Right. So yesterday and then this morning, cumulatively, there have been four new studies. And this is now taking either live virus or what's called a pseudovirus and putting it up against the blood samples from people who have been vaccinated or have had prior COVID with vaccination, all sorts of different vaccines. What we've learned, Jade, is that there is a pretty substantial drop in the protection from Omicron in our vaccines. However, that is fully restored with the booster shot. So the good news is we have a tool that will get us to meet up with Omicron, the challenge of Omicron. But the problem we have is that we don't have enough people getting boosters. And we need that because just relying on the original two shots isn't going to be enough to tackle Omicron. Another major concern is that Omicron can override certain protections afforded by vaccines. What do we know about that? You know, in South Africa, Gauteng, the main province where this really erupted, the epicenter now, at least of the Omicron uh, surge, there were a lot of reports that people were less sick. But the problem is those people were young. They had uh, prior COVID and or they were vaccinated. So that's not a good readout to be able to say that Omicron is associated with mild illness. In fact, it's very likely, given everything we know, that the illness that it it induces will be the same as what we've seen with the other uh, versions of the virus. So I think it's an illusion for us to think it's kind of this hope bias that it won't be as bad. Right now, we ought to count it being about the same. The only good thing, Jade, at least there's no sign that it's more lethal or worse than prior versions of the virus. And I've heard something about Pfizer and uh, its effectiveness. What's the latest with that? Well, Pfizer came out today to show that when you get the booster, you get back to high ability to neutralize the virus, which essentially means, you know, inactivate the virus, protect people. 
And that other studies had already shown it. That's not really new. And they just added on to the three other studies. I mean, the, these three reports, one from South African scientists, another from uh, Sweden, another from Germany, they're all showing essentially the same thing, that Omicron is going to pose a really big challenge to us because uh, whereas Delta responded really well to vaccines, this one is tricky. Uh, if we don't get the third shot, we'll be vulnerable. The one important thing to emphasize, when I say vulnerable, we're talking about infection, symptomatic infection, and ability to transmit that to others. But we do think the two shots that people have had will protect from hospitalizations and deaths, largely because the main problem with Omicron, and this is pending some more data, is the, uh, the antibodies. But we do make T cells from our vaccines, and if we had a COVID infection. And those T cells are the main way that we protect from really severe the COVID pneumonia, hospitalizations, that sort of thing. So when I talk about vulnerability, I'm talking about really to infection and, and transmitting to others. There's not nearly the peril or the danger that we're going to see as the hospitalization issue. But one caveat there, if it's spreading so much more profoundly, a fraction of those people are going to get sick and, you know, very sick. So that's why these are some unpredictable features that we're going to learn about, as well as the T-cell story in the weeks ahead. What role do you think global vaccine inequity played in the emergence of this variant? You know, the U.S. is is the main contributor to new COVID right now with 120,000 cases a day out of 700,000 in the world. So while we have to do everything possible to uh, get uh, global vaccine equity, uh, we have to get our country in order, which it isn't. We haven't controlled contained Delta at all. We're going through a second Delta surge, which is the immediate issue. So we are in the process uh, of making uh, much more vaccine, vaccines at scale and distributing those. That's not just the U.S. That's you know many entities that are working on that. It's been too slow, uh, but hopefully you know we'll see improvements there. In the meantime, if we talk about global equity, the U.S. has got to do its part, and it isn't doing it right now. And many medical experts have expressed cautious optimism uh, as preliminary data shows that Omicron should not coincide with a rise in hospitalizations. Do you agree with that? No, I don't agree with that. As for the point that I made is that if you're transmitting so broadly and quickly, so super spreading around the country, some people are going to get sick. That is people who haven't been vaccinated. People who have been vaccinated, but it's waned, it's waned and they haven't gotten a booster. So, no, I don't think we, we that's a false sense of security. Uh, and uh, like I said, we will know more because countries that were that have already had a demonstrable increases in Omicron, like the UK and Denmark, hospitalizations are going up quite a bit in South Africa now. So that will play out in the weeks ahead. But I wouldn't want to forecast it. The hospitals are going to be spared and patients are, are not going to get that sick. When it spreads so, so much, uh, that seems to be an inev inevitability. In my own experience, you know, the primary care physician is not offering the booster shot. It's two weeks to get an appointment through my turn. Again, do you think that accessibility to the booster shot is an issue? It doesn't seem to be as widely available as, say, the flu shot, for example. Yeah, well, it should be. I mean, most people I know who are getting boosters are going to a pharmacy and um, the appointments there, 
usually are, are not with much delay. Now, I don't know the latest on that, but that has to be fixed because we need our uh, population. Every, anyone who's gotten to a six-month point should have ready access in, even before they had gotten to six months to making an appointment. Uh, I hope we don't have to go to mass vaccination centers again to get this thing done. I hope that we have enough channels that exist today. We don't have a shortage of supply of vaccines. It's more the distribution issue. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Dr. Topol, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jane. It would be a tragedy if we beat back one public health crisis only to allow another to grow in its place. Those are the words of U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy from his public health advisory issued yesterday on children's mental health. The advisory is meant to focus attention on an increased rate of depression and anxiety being diagnosed in children, much of it apparently arising from the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic. The advisory calls for government, social media companies, schools, and parents to respond to the problem with increased mental health resources. But it's not clear if schools, social media, communities, or the government are up to the challenge. And just as a warning to listeners, some of this discussion will concern suicide and suicidal ideation, which some people might find disturbing. Joining me is Dr. Willow Jenkins, Medical Director of Inpatient Psychiatry at Rady Children's Hospital. And Dr. Jenkins, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Now, this public health advisory says that symptoms of depression and anxiety among youth have doubled during the pandemic. Is this something that you've seen treating patients? Absolutely. We have seen a huge increase in the number of children that have been coming to the inpatient side of the hospital at Rady Children's during the pandemic. We have had, just as an example, from September 2020 to August 2021, so about six-month period, we had 3,000, almost 3,000 children endorse suicidal ideation when they came through our emergency room. This is a staggering number. And so absolutely, we see more and more depression and anxiety presenting since the start of the pandemic. And how young are the children affected? It can be quite young, and that's something that we've noticed over the last 10 years, that children are presenting younger and younger. So for depression and anxiety, we can see this down to toddlerhood. For the suicidal ideation, typically we're seeing children down to eight, not usually less than that, but for us, that's far too young. And how do younger children exhibit depression or anxiety? So for young children, typically what you'll see is more disruptions in their behavior. Maybe they're acting out more, getting into more trouble at school, being a little bit more irritable or short-tempered. And of course, disruptions in sleep, not sleeping as well, changes in appetite. These are other signs that your young child might be struggling because they don't always have the capacity to be able to tell you, I'm depressed, I'm anxious. Now, one of the most disturbing statistics is that suspected suicide attempts by adolescent girls were up 51% in early 2021 over last year. Is social isolation thought to be the main cause of suicidal depression among young girls? 
it would be difficult to say it's the main cause, but I think it certainly is a factor that the pandemic has amplified. We know that the amount of social media use, screen time use has increased exponentially with the pandemic, and that the quality of these relationships is not the same as in-person relationships. And it leads to feelings of loneliness and isolation. And so it's been a very large contributor in the last two years, but it's certainly not been the only one. Issues of racial injustice, the political sphere has been very divisive. These are all other issues that have been affecting our adolescents. And what other problems are you hearing about that kids are experiencing? Well, I think one of the things that is the most striking is that it's children that are marginalized and underserved are youth of color that are being disproportionately affected by the mental health crisis. And so issues like I just mentioned of racial injustice, the political divisiveness, even things as the climate emergency, these issues are weighing heavily on our adolescents and are huge factors in addition to all of the impact that the pandemic has brought both on youth directly and indirectly through the impact on their families. Now, when in-person schools opened up again, we heard that most kids were very happy about it, but apparently the transition back has been hard for some students. There are anecdotal reports of more absenteeism and acting out at school. What's causing this? You know, it is difficult to say because it's going to be individual to the environment and also to the student. But for some students, especially those with disabilities, the transition back to the classroom has been quite difficult. Resources have changed. The way things have been set up to support students looks different than it did pre-pandemic. And retaining staff in different school settings, I know this is the case in San Diego, has been challenging. So it makes the accommodations and resources to support students that may need extra support less than what they were. So this can create more problems. In addition, youth have been accustomed to being at home, doing things over the computer. And so for some, it was actually preferable. If you'd been bullied or had difficulties with social interactions, perhaps being online was easier than returning to in-person. So a lot of different factors for sure. You alluded to this earlier, and many child psychologists say the problems of anxiety and depression were already growing among children even before the pandemic. So do you see this as an ongoing problem? The pandemic exacerbated an already existing problem. I use the example that at Rady Children's Hospital, we'd seen a huge increase, exponential increase in the need for mental health. That before the pandemic started, we were planning to open a specialized psychiatric emergency room. And as luck would have it, you know, in a sad way, the pandemic started and the need even went further up. So we were able to open our specialized psychiatric emergency room during the pandemic. And it's been full since. So absolutely the need was there before, and the pandemic has just worsened this crisis that was already present. What signs should a family look for if they suspect their child is going through some sort of difficult mental health disturbance? A change in their behavior is key. If they're withdrawing from the family, not doing things that they normally enjoy, not hanging out with their friends or changing friend groups, these are all signs that something has gone astray. Difficulty sleeping is key. Changing in appetite, not feeling as energized, these are also signs that something's not going well. And of course, the obvious is if your child is talking about it, saying, I feel sad, I just don't feel the same, I'm feeling really worried, I'm feeling really anxious. And that's why it's so important to be really direct with children and just ask, how are you feeling? Are you feeling sad? 
And of course, asking directly about suicide as well. It's an unfortunately common enough phenomenon in youth that as parents, as teachers, as people working with children, we need to be directly asking them, have you had suicidal thoughts? Asking about suicide does not cause suicide. If anything, it saves lives. The Surgeon General says communities need to respond quickly with a wide-ranging approach to confront children's mental health problems. What would you like to see in that response? I would like to see some more funding to be able to allow for expansion of existing programs. And I think that that needs to come from the federal level and it needs to allow access to all families. I also think that we need to very much improve school-based mental health care treatment, provide more support to the schools. They are at the front lines. It's the school teachers, the counselors that are identifying children you know, at risk. And also we need to improve integration into our primary care and pediatric offices because for those of us in this line of work, we believe that prevention is key. These mental health issues are preventable, they are treatable, and we need to catch children early. I've been speaking with Dr. Willow Jenkins, Medical Director of Inpatient Psychiatry at Rady Children's Hospital. Dr. Jenkins, thank you so much. Thank you. If you or someone you know are having thoughts of suicide, call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat. Uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Thousands of catalytic converters have been reported stolen from cars in San Diego County. Surveillance videos show thieves getting away with the converter before anyone notices. KPBS reporter Tanya Thorne takes a closer look at how this is happening. They're being dubbed cat burglars, but they're not after your jewels. Their target catalytic converters, a part found underneath cars that reduces their harmful emissions. Thieves stole catalytic converters from Vista resident Amanda Hendricks twice. The first time, her converter was stolen three days before Christmas. Thankfully, the um, insurance took care of it. They told the police came, they told us park it in the driveway under a light that will discourage. So we did everything they said. Um, Then April came along and happened again. This time, her ring camera got footage of the theft happening. Her car was jacked up and the converter stolen in under four minutes. It's very frustrating. I'm a light sleeper anyway. 
and then it just it adds a level of anxiety that you know you you feel like those are your private things you know and to have somebody coming and damaging it taking it apart you know and it just it felt like such a violation and she's not the only one this year more than 1500 converter thefts have been reported in san diego cameras have captured thefts happening in broad daylight in public places but why have catalytic converters become a hot commodity the parts contain platinum and rhodium and the price per ounce for these precious metals has gone up in the last year toyota prius converters contain more of these metals making them the biggest targets. And they're cutting them anywhere from here to there, wherever they can, and uh, run off with them, put them in the trunk and leave, you know. Tony English owns Wholesale Performance Muffler in Escondido. He says he sees cars whose converters have been stolen every week, especially after the weekend. They steal the catalytic converters and they sell them to recyclers, you know. Uh, most of the legit recyclers won't buy them, but there are, uh, you know, they, they trickle it down somehow and they get them sold somewhere. Some insurances do cover stolen catalytic converters, but they don't cover the shield that protects the converter from theft. And that is a Prius shield to keep from stealing a Prius catalytic converter. English says he's installing more of them. Priuses, for instance, are $3,600 just in parts when somebody steals your catalytic converter. So a $500 shield really sounds like a really good investment, you know. While the shields protect the converter, law enforcement is trying to crack down on the thefts happening across the county. What's happening before is if someone was contacted with um, catalytic converters, say, in the middle of the night, and we didn't, we weren't able to link them to a crime, that was, you know, what we we believe was stolen property, but um, we needed a victim to, you know, file a case, match it up to a car. Lieutenant Bode Barrett with the Escondido Police Department says the district attorney's office has given police the green light to start making arrests. In speaking with the district attorney's office, they're saying there is no other reason to have these things in the middle of the night. Um, and they are stolen property. So we have the probable cause to make that arrest and they will file on those cases. Lieutenant Barrett says since no arrests were being made due to the pandemic, thieves were getting bold. So bold that in August, thieves stole a catalytic converter from an Escondido Police Department van. Surveillance footage helped police catch the thieves. Tula Vista was able to make a stop on that vehicle about four days later. Um, there were some catalytic converters in that vehicle at the time. Um, unfortunately, because of the time frame difference between the, the, the days, so we didn't get a, a conviction on our case, but I mean, the, the person was uh, contacted by law enforcement. Police departments have also hosted events where community members can get their catalytic converters engraved with their VIN number in case it is ever stolen. Officials recommend parking your vehicle inside a garage or in a well-lit area, getting security cameras and alarms, and consider getting a cat shield to protect the converter. Joining me is KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. And Tanya, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. Now, the theft of catalytic converters is one of the hot topics on my next door social media site. How did you get interested in the story? I mean, it's exactly that, right, Maureen? I think we've all heard of these thefts happening. We've seen them. I mean, we've seen countless surveillance videos on our Nextdoor app, on Facebook, and it's just, it's popping up everywhere. So I think we've all known somebody or seen somebody that's been impacted by these thefts. So it's just this problem that seems to be happening countywide. And are there hotspots where a lot of these thefts take place? Or is it, as you say, all over the county? 
You know, when I started this, I originally wanted to gather data from all of our local police departments, but that was proving to be really difficult. And, you know, it, it looked like no city or police department wants to be the one that has the most thefts happening, right? But after gathering some data, it really looks like City of San Diego definitely has the most reports just because of the size of the city. I mean, they've had over a thousand reports made, but you know, this is something that is happening countywide and even statewide. I mean, it's really happening everywhere. Now, if you get your catalytic converter stolen, can you still drive your car? <laughs> well, the biggest giveaway that your converter has been stolen is that screechy sound it makes as soon as you turn the key. So that's the biggest giveaway. If you hear that sound, you know your converter has more than likely been stolen. And technically, the car is still drivable, but the entire trip will be an eerie, loud and screechy ride. So it's probably best to get it towed just for safety. The reason why the converters were being stolen always mystified me. But your report says it's because of the metals that they contained. Are they really so valuable? You know, they really are. And it's why thieves keep stealing them. The prices of the metals do go up and down. And the way it works is a thief steals a converter and sells them to a recycler. The thieves are getting a couple hundred bucks, maybe four to five hundred dollars for each converter. The recyclers are the ones that are making the bigger money, depending on the market value of the metals at the time. And they have their way of extracting those precious metals that are found inside the catalytic converters. The speed of the thefts is amazing, considering it's not easy to get underneath a car to remove the converters. How is it usually done? You know, it is amazing. I've seen so many videos and they're all under four or five minutes. And from what I've seen is that thieves usually come equipped with only a couple of things. It's usually a car jack, a handheld saw and a flashlight, right? Because they're probably doing this at night and they are very quick. I mean, they can get under there, jack up the car and they have a lookout. Usually they're with somebody else. Someone's looking out to see if anyone is watching. And I mean, they are in and out. It is really amazing. Let's talk about the catalytic converter shields that you mentioned in your report. Do they really make it impossible to steal these things? You know, I learned that it's not impossible, but it does provide an extra barrier that these thieves have to get through. So usually what is happening is that if the thieves see one of these shields is covering the converter, they're more than likely going to move on to another car just because it's going to take them more time to get to the converter. It might ruin their saw or their whatever they're using to steal these things. So it seems like it's definitely deterring the thieves from concentrating on that car and moving on to one without a shield. Now that the county DA has given permission for police to make arrests when someone is found with a catalytic converter, what kind of charges is the suspect facing? So police were unable to make any arrests because of the booking restrictions due to the pandemic. But now the DA has given them the green light to start making arrests because if someone is pulled over in the middle of the night and they have, you know, two, three catalytic converters in their trunk, it is very probable that they have just stolen those converters. So because it just is so much money to replace these things, we're talking about three to four or $5,000 to get a catalytic converter replaced. That is over the $950 limit. So this is automatically a felony. And so the DA will start filing cases for these thieves. And tell us more about the effort to get VIN numbers put on catalytic converters. Yeah, so, you know, if a thief is found with a couple catalytic converters in their trunk and we can't identify who those catalytic converters belong to, 
if a VIN number is engraved on this converter, then it really helps the police locate a victim. And that way, the case can be complete and there is a, an entire report that is filed. And this really helps prosecute the thief. So a lot of auto shops have been working with law enforcement to get the community to come out and get their VIN numbers engraved on their catalytic converters because it's become such a problem. You know, we've seen so many things arise during the pandemic, kind of because there was a pandemic. Does law enforcement think that the theft of catalytic converters is something that is specific to these strange times or something that's going to last? You know, I mean, the thefts of catalytic converters definitely increased because of the pandemic. I mean, a lot of people were struggling financially. And so apparently it's easy money because it keeps happening. They're able to get them sold somewhere. But, you know, it's it's also that these the price of these metals are are high again. So if if it's easy money and the thieves see that they can get away with it in four to five minutes and they're making four or five hundred bucks every night, you know, maybe even just stealing one is worth it to them. So it's definitely a result of the pandemic and the price of the metals. But yeah, and so law enforcement is really hoping that now that they are able to make arrests, that the thefts of these converters will ultimately go down. I've been speaking with KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, thank you. Thank you. After a pandemic year of buying online, holiday shoppers have a unique opportunity this weekend, actually touching and paging through a real book. The North Park Book Fair Holiday Edition is happening this Saturday with hundreds of new and used books for sale, plus food vendors and an open mic. The fair is in support of small businesses this holiday season. And joining me with details on the book fair is one of the event coordinators, Jennifer Coburn. Jennifer, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, bookstores in North Park must be so eager for this event. How tough has it been for those small businesses during the past year? Well, as you know, uh, small businesses across the country have been really hit hard by the pandemic because, you know, when when we're told that you really can't go out unless you are going to the supermarket or to a doctor's appointment, people start to rely on online retailers more. So buying habits start to change, and that really hits the small business community hard, especially booksellers. Now, even before the lockdowns, independent bookstores were threatened by online giants like Amazon. Were they getting creative to stay afloat? They were getting creative and the pandemic forced them to be even more creative. You know, when when we had the lockdown order, one of our bookstores, Verbatim Books, decided, okay, if people can't come inside my bookstore, I'm going to bring my books out to the sidewalk so that people can leaf through, browse, talk with other book lovers. And we were shocked. There was a line around the corner. People were really hungry for this type of human connection and interaction. So that was kind of what prompted us to have our first North Park Book Fair this summer. Can you tell us what people can expect at the North Park Book Fair Holiday Edition this weekend? Sure thing. They can expect a great time with over 100 booths. We're going to have 15 bookstores, 11 small presses, and we're going to have dozens of local authors. Uh, Like there's historical fiction favorite, Jill Hall, 
pink Chicana poet, Kazim Ali. And if you are not a writer but want to be, Writers Inc. is going to be there. So they can tell you about the classes that they offer for aspiring writers and also for the kids. And there's going to be plenty of kids, booksellers, and Santa Claus will be there. Will the authors at the fair, will they be signing books? Sure thing. They'll be signing all of their books. So if you want to pick up a nice uh, edition for yourself to cozy up by the fire with and stuff the stockings of your book-loving friends, um, they're there to do it. Will there be gifts on sale other than books? Yeah, we're going to have other handcrafted, one-of-a-kind gifts. There'll be candles, there'll be chocolates, there'll be cheese. It will be a wonderful street fair for book lovers. And if you've got people who really aren't book lovers, they're going to still have a good time because we're going to have live music. We're going to have tons of things to do, things to eat, and goods to buy. Tell us about some of the safety precautions in place for this event. Well, the major safety protocol that we have is that the event is outdoors. We're also going to have more hand-washing stations and bathrooms, and there will be no samplings of foods offered by the food sellers, which is disappointing, but also is going to keep our guests safe. Are you concerned about all the talk about the Omicron variant keeping the population down for this uh, event? Yeah, the Omicron variant is of concern, which is why we've really doubled down on our safety precautions. We all know what the downsides of the pandemic are for independent bookstores, but is there an upside? Do people suspect the pandemic led to people reading more? The pandemic absolutely led to people reading more. Um, Book Riot recently surveyed their members and they found that 58% were reading more during the pandemic. Uh, Lit Hub did a similar survey. They found 35% of their subscribers um, were reading more. So people are reading more. They're buying more books, they're listening to audiobooks, and they are downloading ebooks. So book buying is up. But the way people have purchased books has shifted. They've been relying more on online booksellers. So that has led to many booksellers having to get a little more creative. So as I mentioned, the Verbatim Books, who along with the North Park Lions Club and North Park Main Street are the sponsors of this event, Uh, People are getting really creative. They're bringing their books outdoors. They are having events via Zoom. Events were one of the ways that booksellers really sold a lot of books because people love to connect with authors, ask questions about the writing process, ask questions about how they got their ideas, how they did their research. And that wasn't able to happen online. So they did it on Zoom. There's a bookseller in Brooklyn who had people order books online, and then they would deliver them. They would deliver them to their door. As you say, I think buying books online has turned into a habit for a lot of people. It's very convenient. It comes fast and you don't have to leave the house. But what do you get from attending a fair like this or going in person to a bookstore that you can't get online? 
You know, there is no algorithm that is going to replace human connection. When you have a chance to talk to authors, to talk to booksellers, to tell them, hey, I like this book. What did you think of this other book by the author? And, you know, Amazon is great. They can recommend things for you. Like if you like this, you'll probably like this. But you can't have a conversation with another human being. And I think we all really crave that now more than ever. And there's also something about actually paging through a book and getting to know it before you take it home. And you know what? I don't know if I really want to live in a world without bricks and mortar bookstores. As you said, you can leaf through the books. You can sit down and, and read a couple pages. And it's, it's just a wonderful sanctuary from the hustle and bustle of our everyday lives. Jennifer, do you think San Diego's independent bookstores are going to be able to bounce back from their pandemic decline? I think they already are, and I think that's only going to grow in the future. Okay, then. The North Park Book Fair Holiday Edition is this Saturday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. at North Parkway and 30th Street. I've been speaking to Jennifer Coburn, one of the event coordinators. And Jennifer, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. It's been a pleasure. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Each month, KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans brings five songs to our attention for us to listen to, including new tracks by locals or from bands coming to town on tour. And she joins us with her music picks for the month of December. Julia, welcome. Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me. So first up, we have a San Diego band called The Phases with their track Remote Control. Tell us about them. The Phases, they're having a bit of a moment right now. They went on tour with Beach Goons earlier this fall and played shows across the country, including to a packed house at the observatory here. And they also just played with Inflorescence last week at The Loft at UCSD. And they're going to play Soda Bar with The Have Nots on December 30th. And I love their sound. It's kind of a mix of of lo-fi grit along with sweetness. It's kind of like a nostalgic yearning that definitely betrays their youth. And they recently put out a new single called Remote Control. The lyrics are equal parts angry, fed up, and a bit dystopic nursery rhyme. Like the lyrics, the jester lost his hand in the court, the king won't listen anymore. And it, it's like this fuzzy, synthed-out pop song. It's perfectly grungy. Gloria, man, try to scare, try to get down, down from here. Look at my eyes, they're empty. 
That's Remote Control by The Phases. And playing Soda Bar this coming weekend on Saturday is another artist from your list, Juliana Zachariu. She has a new track called She. Tell us why she wrote this song. Yeah, so Juliana Zachariu told me that this song is about how she wishes she had come out to her parents and just kind of the strangeness of having to come out in the first place. She said that she had played this song on tour recently and that the energy in the room absolutely transformed when the song would be played. It's about how being gay is not the life her parents wanted for her, but the difference is, quote, just an S in front of the H and the E. The song overall feels really anthemic, but also super intimate and personal from her own lived experience. And I especially adore that repeated line, love is bigger than fear. Why do you think I'm here? I saw Juliana Zachariu play live in July, and it was such a joyous, earnest, and really fun show. So I can't wait to see her again on Saturday. She's working on a new album, which is expected to be out in the spring. And this single is the latest little taste of that album. Love is- That was Juliana Zachariu with She. Next, we head down to South Bay to hear from Chula Vista's Los Saints. They'll play a show on December 14th, also at Soda Bar. Let's hear their track, I'm in Need. Maybe things will get better now that you're paying me attention. Still some things ain't right, cause I'm, I'm So Los Saints has the super melodic sound. I've seen them described as bedroom pop, which is kind of a genre-defying sound known for intimacy or minimalism. And there's a ton of emotion in this and just a little bit of an edge. I really like this single from 2020 called I'm In Need. And they released this along with a bunch of other pandemic-fueled projects like in this burst of creativity, including a three-part song cycle with music videos for each one. But I'm in need is about not really feeling like everything is perfect, but that it's okay. It's a relatively quiet tune with a lot of ache and definitely some resolve. And Los Saints will play with 3LH at Soda Bar on Tuesday. And that's Los Saints with I'm in Need. Now for your out-of-town pick, Oakland band Fearing, who are coming to town Sunday night. Tell us about their latest full-length album and uh, one of their singles, Pictured Perfect. Yeah, Fearing is a pretty goth post-punk band. They kind of build on all of the members' former punk band chops, but then it all is kind of washed out with a, with a mellower, darker mood a little bit like shoegaze. And I instantly thought of former locals Softkill or Blood Ponies when I heard Fearing. And they put out an album in 2020 called Shadow. One of my favorite tracks from there, Pictured Perfect, is this devastating, sprawling, and cinematic song. Not just in the sound, but in the lyrics too. There's some really great scene setting in their songwriting. 
And they're on tour right now and coming to Soda Bar on Sunday performing with Tennis System. That was Pictured Perfect by Oakland band Fearing. And finally, Oceanside's own Shane Hall is your next pick with his song Life Up. Live us life up, live us life up, we gonna Live us life up, live us life up It's been a long time since I left Hall will be playing the Casbah this Friday, December 10th. Talk to us about this pick. Shane Hall is a, a blues and soul powerhouse. He recently put out a live album and then a brand new video for this track, Life Up. And it's the very first glimpse we've had of his forthcoming release. It's an EP called The Slow. It's something like a detour from his more raucous blues sound that the energy still comes through. It's paired down with this sonic backdrop of falsetto harmonies and descants and then this, this dash of heartbreak. It really is a gorgeous track and I can't wait to hear the rest of the EP. For a Friday show at the Casbah, Shane Hall will be playing with the great Jake Nager and the Moment of Truth, Chunky Hustle Brass Band, and Emily Afton. You can find a playlist of all these songs and details on the concerts at our website. I've been speaking with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, thank you. Thanks so much, Jade. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. 